It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, January 12th. We have so much action going on on court to kick off the 2024 season. I'll be honest, it's difficult to keep track of everything. That said, we know it's our job to do precisely that for all of you tennis fans, keep you up to date on everything happening each and every day throughout the tennis world. On today's show, we plan on doing exactly that. And I do want to point out once more here to start today's show. If you are looking for more Australian Open preview content, head on over to the Great Shot podcast feed. That's where we're going to house all of those conversations moving forward. That said, we do have a little bit of Australian Open talk for all of you listeners today, as obviously over the last 24 hours, Australian Open qualifying officially came to its conclusion. I want to break down the most notable results who were the standout stars of the qualifying rounds that you need to take note of as we all get ready for the start of the year's first major. Of course, I also want to offer an update on all the tour-level action we have this week. Four different events on the calendar, and dare I say, these ones feel like they mean a little bit more, just given how little tennis we've seen so far this season. Of course, we've also got three challengers on the calendar as well. Plenty of tennis for us to discuss on today's show, and joining me to help break it all down is a man, of course, you all know as a contributor here at Cracked Rackets and a contributor across the tennis world. His threads are essential reads throughout the course of any qualifying rounds at a Grand Slam event. And of course, he's a man I am hoping to have on this podcast more frequently here in 2024, a returning champion to our Cracked Rackets shows, host of the Monday Great Shot podcast focused on all things ATP challengers. And our dear friend, Damian Kust, joins us once again. Damian, welcome back to the show. We have 2024 tennis in the air. How are you feeling, my friend? Are you overwhelmed yet? <laughs> sort of, but I guess it's going to be like a slower <laughs> day now, you know, after the, the qualifying. Only two more weeks of not sleeping, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I've never really, uh, like, I, I've always uh, definitely put the stress on Australian Open qualifying or any slam qualifying on the podcast as well, even though it's not a challenger. We were always just talking about it because, well, this is challenger players, more or less, and it's so important as well. You see it all the time in the reactions that they have, you know, when they qualify yesterday, it was a, a whole show of that, of course, for 16 on the women's side, 16 on the men's. So I'm kind of sorry it's over, but there's also a lot to talk about. So, um, you know, let's do it. Yeah, that's why we're glad to have you today. I'm glad you brought up that point. The emotion you see on these fa uh, players' faces, it's palpable. It's more than you get in a tour-level final. It's more than you get yeah. in a challenger final because it's not just qualifying for a slam and the pageantry that comes with that. It's life-changing money. It's an opportunity for life-changing points. You can fund your entire year with a good slam to start the season, obviously for a bunch of players, whether it's trying to make, <clears throat> excuse me, 
a top 100 debut, or again, further consolidate their positions moving up the rankings. Maybe you're a teenager into your first slam main draw. It is always refreshing and such a fun start to the 2024 season to have slam qualifying in week number two of the year. And again, as we look at the draws, dare I say, some of our takes, Damien, from December, aging well already to start this season. And again, we'll get into all of that. We'll set the scene, Ostapenko, Kasatkina. You've got, obviously, the funkiness in Auckland. I thought we were getting Shelton Fees. Was getting really excited for that. Instead, we get Taro Daniel versus Alejandro Tabila, which is interesting in its own way. And we'll get into all of that again. Hobart, Adelaide on the men's side, the challengers so much much more. A thank you, as always, to you listeners who tune in day in, day out. A thank you, of course, to our friends at Tennis Point for their support as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. Damien, it's always fun to celebrate takes you're correct about. So let's start with Australian Open qualifying, and let's start on the men's side, because obviously I had you on a podcast in December talking about the players we thought were most likely to make a top 100 breakthrough. And I'll tell you what, a lot of those players we discussed found themselves with an opportunity to qualify for this year's Australian Open. And I think the two headliners have to belong to two young stars that we both had circled as players when, not if, at some point in their career, they're going to make top 100, obviously better debuts than that. You have Dino Prismich, ultimately three and four over Aziz Dugas, probably an easier final round qualifying matchup as they come. But hey, he gets through in straight sets. He's through to the main draw of the Australian Open now. Things are going to get pretty tough for him in round number one. I don't know if you've heard of this player, Damian. Yeah, he plays yeah. a guy by the name of Novak Djokovic. Uh, that's not always the most fun matchup when you face off against the number one seed. I'll tell you what, 18-year-old Jakub Menchik, he's going to have a real opportunity early in his Australian Open debut. He gets a straight set win over Harold Mayotte, who I believe made a challenger final in week number one, or I believe he had that good. He was a, a good result, if memory serves me correct, Damien. No. Semi-final, semi-final. Semi-final. Two, two tie breaks to Caso, yeah. That, that's what it was. The all-French semi-final, thank you, and three of four in that opening week of the challenger play. I'm, I'm following it more, cl- like, everything more closely this year, Damien, because, again, I'm having you on the show more, and I know I got to bring the goods whenever we have you, but Menchik... Three and six in that final round qualifying action. He's through to the main draw where he's got a first round matchup with Denis Shapovalov. Now, more broadly on the men's side, Damien, again, these first two weeks, some of these young guys have looked really, really good. Menchik obviously making a challenger final. Jerry Shung semifinals last week in Hong Kong as well. And Oh my God, did the lefty look good going three sets in his loss with Andre Rublev. Feels like he's made a leap physically this offseason, the leap he needed to make. Uh, He got a wild card into the main draw as well. So again, that's two 18-year-olds. Obviously, you all know I've been driving the Dino Prismich bandwagon, the 18-year-old through the Australian Open main draw as well. Again, three 18-year-olds who we're going to see featured in just to put the final bow on it so we know all the matchups Jerry Shung a winnable match against Mackie McDonald, certainly, uh, in round number one. Talk to me about first the two 18-year-old qualifiers. Let's start with Menchik. What's impressed you most? Challenger final now qualifying for the Australian Open to start the season. Do you think he's made a clear leap? Yeah, um, I mean, I think something that I'm going to start with is that I actually agree that like it seems that every single year after the off season we have all these young players suddenly rising. 
Um, I'm writing this weekly recap in like an, in an article form as well on the Challenger Tour. And I remember last year titling like the first or second of the year, um, something like Young Arms Dangerous, whatever. It was because of all these youngsters winning. This year, uh, I think one of my first titles was Young Guys on Young Guns on the Rise or something like that. Like every literally every single year it happens. And I guess it makes sense as well because they actually get the off season. They get like a lot of time to train sort of start again but build up as well whereas for a player like who's 30 the off season is probably not going to matter all that much right so so i think it, it does make sense on that level that the youngsters still need some sort of development through training as well and during the year of course it's not that easy to get it because you're constantly playing events but yeah Jakub Menshik um the matchup of the round one of the qualifying was clear always Menshik Nakashima he managed to beat him again uh, I don't know if it was you that I was chatting to this about like a long while ago, but Nakashima, Nakashima basically like the, the things that he was doing well when he was getting to the tour, now he's kind of actually uh, making them into liabilities, like the return game, like the sort of clutch factor as a whole. And I think against Menshik, it did hurt him quite a lot. Menshik also just simply hits a bigger ball, as stupid as it sounds. And Nakashima couldn't really live with that for the second time in a row. Uh, you know, I was sort of thinking if they play twice, it's probably going to be one all. And at that point, the, the pressure was definitely high on Menchik. Like when, when he was playing Gaio or Mayo, he was obviously expected to make it through. I mean, you've beaten Nakashima. Why wouldn't you make it? Sure. He also had that US Open third round, of course, where he also qualified and, and even had a run in the main draw. So I think the pressure was really high. Some of that you could see against Gaio. Um, I'm not sure if he played smart to beat him. But he definitely, like, whenever the pressure was high, he would just crank a massive forehand down the line. And, you know, it, it kind of looks like a shot that cannot be controlled. Of course, in his case, apparently it can be. And Mayo, uh, it was also a pretty tight battle, actually. And Mayo, at some point, he slipped and he injured his ankle, so he couldn't remove really in the tiebreak. But still, I think for, for Menchik, after the, the opening round win over Nakashima, it was, of course, massive, and, and he played amazing there. Mostly, like, the, the main idea was to just get through, regardless of the style, really, because he was just such a massive favorite to do it. And Nakashima would have been as well. But that was what I, I think I said it on the on the podcast when I was pre previewing the Australian Open qualifiers, that like if Nakashima beats Menchik, I really trust him to make it to the main draw. But Menchik, you know, he's 18. He can have a poor performance. And the good thing is that he actually managed to survive that poor performance. And I do agree that he has a massive chance in the main draw, you know, playing Shapovalov in the opening round. I was expecting him to be the favorite there. Uh, I already checked also that for the bookies, he is the favorite. So, um, yeah, I mean, after after seeing Shapovalov play against Ofner, I know it's his first match back. He, he's going to be back if he's healthy. I'm, I'm pretty sure about it. You know, the talent level is just too high. But it's just kind of hard to buy it right now with the, especially against a big server and an overall big hitter. Uh, the return game against Shapo, against Ofner was awful. He was making like, a, you know, 10 double faults or something like that as well. Um, yeah, it's just hard to see Shapovalov winning that for now. And then, like Menchik Hurkac, to me, it's, it sounds like a close match. And I, <laughs> perhaps also a, a battle where, like, Menchik can still be, of course, very raw and inconsistent, but maybe more so when he plays someone like Gaio, like a smart grinder and not another, like, big server where it's just going to be, you know, quick points all around. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I really like his chances to trouble Hurkac. I'm, I'm not going to go deeper than that. 
Like if he gets if he gets that, then everything else is a bonus. But he has a serious chance of making round two. Everyone will be sort of counting on him as well to make round two. And yeah, um, I think exactly what I was hoping for when we were doing that off-season episode, where I said that like he he could just come back very like rejuvenated after the off-season. That exact thing has happened, and um, uh, I think at this point the top 100 debut seems just imminent. Yeah, well said. Again, the 18-year-old up to 144 in the rankings. That's a new career high entering the week. Obviously, he qualifies in Australia, just qualified at the U.S. Open, where he made the third round as a reminder. Look, I've watched much more of him after our, I don't want to say disagreement. I think that's too strong of a word, but you kind of emphasizing my perhaps lack of education around the menschik weapons. And you're right, like the 18-year-old, he can play on his terms against anyone already. That's how big the serve is. And you look for him in Australian Open qualifying. I think he was broken four total times in three matches. You mentioned it. To not just beat Brandon Nakashima once, to beat him twice in the span of five days, that's just so hard to do within this sport. 18-year-old dropping 10 games in each of those matches, but not dropping a set. He's not the most fluid, flexible athlete in and out of the thirds, and uh, in and out of the outer thirds. And he's also a little bit one speed. And what I mean by that is, and it's a good thing, like you can't teach the speed, the weapons with which he hits. Like, again, he can just overwhelm you with his pace. Obviously, there are moments within points, particularly when he's going to be pressured by guys who can also have some pretty big weapons and sustain them consistently, where you need to go a little off speed. You need to find the outer third. You need to maybe elevate a ball 10 feet over the net to buy yourself some time. And that's not something Menchik, at least I have seen him do much of. Now, here's the thing. He hasn't needed to do it because he has been on his front foot at this level in so many of these matches. But this is what I get back to in terms of and I tweeted out a list of 22 and under talent that did not include Menchik. I don't know if I see the top 10 upside yet, Damien. I'm not saying I don't see top 25. Like, those weapons are already there pretty clearly. But to be a top 10 guy, you can't. it can't just be plan A, right? It's got to be B, C, D, and E. You can do all of the little things so well. And again, in his career, the only tour-level action we've seen him play is at that U.S. Open. Like, I guess we got a Davis Cup win over Dusan Lajevic that, again, speaks to he can dictate against just about anyone. And clearly those weapons, probably top 50 already. What happens when there's more pace coming back at him with more consistency and guys who can track down his first strike and push him a little bit further in the rally? Like, the way he was overwhelmed by Fritz in that U.S. Open third round still sticks in my head. Now, again, it was his sixth match in two weeks, and he had to go through qualifying in a way Fritz didn't. But I just need to see it more against bigger weaponry. And that's why that Shapovalov first round is so fascinating. Although, you're right, Dennis looked awful in his first round match against Ofner, like even the second serve was just floating. And if he does that against Menchik, Menchik is going to go out and beat him because Menchik is going to be playing first strike of his own. But what happens when that lefty forehand comes in with heavy topspin and yanks him into the backhand corner? Like, I'm I'm excited to see him pushed against some elite weaponry because I just, that's the thing I haven't seen enough of yet. That's that, That's uh, definitely a fair point. I think some good matches that would be an example of what happens then would be, uh, well, not against the lefty heavy forehand, but against someone like Barrera at the US Open, whom he beat in uh, in the first round or the second round, or Majerovic in Dandere at the end of the year. Uh, that was like a match where like Hamad just goes forehand cross-court every single time, just blast the ball, blast the ball, and it's all coming back. 
And um, I think Menchik definitely, maybe like what you said about elevating the ball, like that that's not something he does. But it's, you know, he is able to sustain himself against big pace in the rally. Uh, now when we're talking about the yeah, like heavy lefty topspin forehand, that maybe I also haven't seen. I'm, I'm struggling to think of a, of a match like this for Menchik. But um, yeah, of course, it's it's all still there. Um, I wasn't maybe, um, like my, my reaction to the fact that she didn't include Menchik in that list wasn't exactly to that point that she didn't include Menchik. I was just thinking, if you have Prismij on there, <laughs> then Menchik is like a much more uh, possible top 10 player for me at the moment. And that was my, like, that was just in correlation to that. Uh, I'm not Fair. necessarily saying that I'm very confident that Menchik will be a top 10 player in the future. I think that simply remains to be seen. Like I, I'm not a yes or a no. Um, but yeah, that, that, was, that was the idea for me of that list. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we're comparing, <laughs> I mean, he definitely had the more interesting qualifying campaign. Th that's true. But when I watch Prismich, it's the exact opposite. Like, you're right. Menchik's A is better. But man, can Prismich do B, C, D, E, F, G, just like athletically in and out of the thirds, the way he springs through a four. And again, Prismich is maybe my weak spot. Maybe I'm going to be a big whiff on Dino Prismich, but just athletically. Guy is gifted. He's springy. He's through, obviously, to uh, qualifies for the main draw here in Australia. And again, it was a good qualifying for the young guys overall. I know, you know, a guy like Petschi Pericard, the 20-year-old from France, he loses in final round of qualifying, loses 7-6 in the third. No shame in a loss like that. You know, some other guys as well you'd put on that list, Shintaro Machizuki, he gets not out 6-2 in the third, taking on a guy in Alexander Kovacic. But he's a lucky loser, so he's a lucky yeah, loser. In both, yeah, again, and it's a shout-out to Kova, by the way, knocking on the door of that top 100 debut. Gab Diallo, another guy we talked about, 6-2 in the third. He gets knocked out by Gofen, but a really fun 7-6 in the third win over Air Bear the round yeah. before. Even in Abdullah Shelby, you know, again, Beats Hamad Medvedevich, 6-2 in the third in the second round of qualifying. A tough 6-2 in the third loss to Omar Jessica, who, by the way, former junior U.S. Open, you tweeted about his story. I got the chance to chat with him a little bit in Bloomfield Hills. Just so great to see him back playing his best tennis. Emilio Nava, another youngster, knocked out 6-6 six six, uh, in final round of qualifying. Pretty good overall campaign, I would say, for the young players out there. Damien, your final thoughts on the men's side? Any things I missed that you would point out? Yeah, like with, with the guys that you just mentioned, like Shelbach, Diallo, they only really lost it physically. Uh, yeah. Shelbach, I guess, after that match against Medvedevich was just tired. And but that was a great win, you know, when, when he just fully exploited the fact that Hamad wasn't fully, like, fully comfortable going to the net and, you know, playing in the forecourt, which, of course, Shelbach does very well with all these drop shot lock combos and et cetera and the passes. So, so yeah, that was a stunning win. Honestly, I love the Jessica Sweeney stories, but a part of me is like, well, we could have had Majerovic making the second week huh. in the major or like something like that, right? Omar Jessica, well, he also got a pretty tough draw, and he, I think, he's playing Kurkac in the opening round, and uh, yeah, like so, so, so there, there is always that bit you know great story but i wish there was a player in the main draw who could have done more but well uh Schellbeich, you know it, it, it it's not jessica's fault obviously uh that he managed to win three three setters in a row in the melbourne heat and some of the players faltered dialogue of him was always going to be like a pretty close match and in fact for a while dialogue was going was uh beating him you now speaking of former great juniors i definitely love the mate Valkus story as well 
uh, finally getting to a slum major. Also, probably like 99% finally breaking the top 200. I always ramble about that um, Hungarian generation of him, Maroshan and Pirosh, and how he was at first the main talent. Then Pirosh won the Australian Open in the juniors. Maroshan was like far behind. No one cared about him. And he was sort of just allowed to you know, continue developing on his own pace. Valkus and Pirosh struggling with injuries. He never really did. Um, so, so it's always nice. But yeah, again, I don't really know if, if these are qualifiers who can actually, you know, produce something massive in the main draw. I think uh, someone who I love, um, like at least in the opening match, a couple of guys are Jesper de Jong, who's going to play. Um, who's who's going to play? Oh, Pedro Kachin, right? He's definitely the favorite there. Yesterday, such a tough win. And he was actually very ready physically for Camilo Ugo Carabelli. And we know Ugo Carabelli loves the marathons. So I was, I was all the time just watching that match. I was waiting for that breakdown of the young because I mean it was like maybe seven six two three and they were at 90 minutes already like that was the sort of pace of play that they were at and even Ugo Karabelli ended up serving for the match so Jesper has a fantastic chance although he would play sooner in the second round and there's also uh, Klein whom I'm very glad that he qualified he started the year so well in Brisbane uh, qualifying as well for a tough route it was like Alice Cressy and then uh, of course he beat Baez lost to Arnaldi in the second round and here it was like he was he was a huge favorite in his section. This actually goes for Kova as well. Like they were the two guys I was really afraid for because they were big favorites in their sections. And in the past, they haven't really handled it all that well. So I think it's a it's a lot of progress for them to do it. I think Kova maybe has secured his top 100, but like we have to wait until the the um actual Fortnite, the actual Australian Open to know more about it, you know, see which players around him win matches. Uh, but yeah, Klein, I also mentioned because he has that good opening round, uh, which is against Sun Wukwon, who's of course coming back from an injury. Then he also would have a se tough second round against Zverev, I think potentially more winnable than the young uh, Sinner. And I also, I guess, will have to mention maybe Lloyd Harris as well. Sure. He was pretty good in Canberra, won a match and then lost to David Goffin. So uh, I was probably expecting him to qualify. I did pick him to qualify. But he like to totally demolished the field, you know. And uh, I think this is probably him finally healthy. He also gets Quentin Alis, where he's actually a pretty strong favorite uh, according to the bookies. Of course, that's going to be like a massive save bot match. But like he is the informed player there uh, at the moment in that section. And from what I remember, and that I have to check because I don't remember who's playing in the second round. Like he's playing Kordar Kopriva potentially then in the second round. I think that is actually winnable. I haven't been convinced at all by Sebi Korda this 2024 beginning of the year. Of course, 2023 was very different when he was like at his best in every single match. Now it's not like that. Now, now yesterday or today, depending on uh, time zones, sure. which I am completely com confused by, uh, about by now, but uh, he won just three games, right, against Lehechka. So Yeah, it did uh, not look good today. And again, yeah. no, I think that's a really good point. And that's something I want to get back to. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but you're right. No, 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 that, that was that match. was basically the end of it. I just wanted to say that, yeah, Harris has like serious round three prospects. Yeah, it's a, it's a good mention. Obviously, a former top 50 player guy we've seen make a round of 16 at a hardcourt major when he did it at the US Open a couple of years ago. I know you're going to break down the men's side with more depth on Monday's show, so I'll leave the rest of the takes for there. Let's move over to the women's side where here's my take for you. And again, we can get into who impressed the most. But coming into this Australian Open, if you include wild cards, which you have to, because by the way, Emma Raducanu, Amanda Nisimova, they're, stu 
still 22 and younger as well, even though it feels like they've been a part of our lives on this half-decade journey with so many ups and downs. But if you include Anisimova and Raducanu, there are 36 players, Damian, 36 players in the Australian Open main draw on the women's side who are age 22 or younger. That's a ridiculous number. And obviously, we know the players up top, right? You know a Sviantec, you know a Goff, you know a Jung Chinwen, even players like Potapova, Fernandez, Kostyuk, they've been around for a while. But, you know, again, looking at these qualifying results, first of all, I don't know if Mira Andriva is the best 16 year old in the world right mm-hmm. now, because there are two others you can honestly put in that conversation. Brenda Fruvertova, after looking really good in week one, yeah, she got blown off the court in the end by Coco Goff, but go watch the first 30 minutes of that match and tell me you didn't see top 20 tennis off the 16-year-old's racket. She's through qualifying into the main draw. You have maybe someone who, and I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but might be better than both Fruvertova and Andreeva in Alina Kornieva, the 16-year-old who is inside the top 200. Obviously, still can't play a full schedule, but had some really big results at the ITF level, 100K level last year. She qualifies 3-3 three and three in her final round match over Anna Bondar, the number 11 seed. Like, again, you can keep going through the list if you want. Lulu Sun, former NCAA doubles finalist, Texas national champion. Uh, she qualifies for her first main draw. Daria Sneeger, another young player. Sarah Balik, another young player. Timofeeva, like just another young Russian, 20 years old, who we don't think about, but another player who qualifies into this event, belongs in this list of 22 and under players you wouldn't expect. And like, again, Katie Volinets, she feels a little older, but her win, uh, again, she's 103 in the world. Good win over Julia Riera. Like that was another fun one. Uh, certainly a battle given Riera's rise of late, I would say, in the rankings. It's the depth in this 22 and under class from Iga Sviantek all the way through to players like Brenda Linda Fruvertova, Diana Schneider, who we still are learning more about at this level, Akami Osorio, who feels like an afterthought, but like we know what her peak level can be. It's a really good group, Damien. Who stood out the most to you in qualifying? Yeah, I mean, I, I might talk about the two 16-year-olds, honestly, yeah. because that was mostly what I was watching out for. Obviously, there's no way to really follow the whole thing. So the women's qualifying, I think that there's been moments, there's been slums when I watched more of it. Here, I think that the main, most compelling story from the very beginning was going to be Kornieva and Frukvirtova. When it comes to that whole who's the best 16-year-old debate, I think it's pretty clearly not Brenda. But I'm really not sure if it's Kornieva or Andreeva. And I'm not saying Brenda won't get there. I'm just saying in the current state of her game, she is uh, definitely she has a lot to learn. Let's okay, just say I want to I, I want to stop mm-hmm. you there just for a second on Brenda because that's fascinating, and I want to talk about these 16 year olds. I'm, I'm yeah. happy going there because, and we can get to Mira Andreeva, who I watched more of in week one than maybe I had in, a, in from an analytical perspective than ever before, but. When I watch Brenda Fruvertova play, like the weapons are so clear. Watching her hit a backhand, you're like, yep, that's going to work. Her forehand, I think the technique is cleaner than her sister's. You hate to make that comparison, but just like she is able to extend through it a little bit I don't. She's much better than Linda in like all aspects. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. And just like- I'm sorry, Linda won a WTA Tour title, but I I don't really buy it. Like I think it was- Here's the thing. I agree. Like, Brenda's more athletic as well. Like, she is springier as an athlete, particularly at 16 years old. And the thing I liked most 
in losing to Coco Goff is how she lost that match. First 30 minutes were a slugfest. There was movement. There was just a little bit of everything. It was very clear she was not going to be able to sustain that level for the next hour. So she said, you know what? I'm going to go down swinging. Like, at least if I'm going to lose this match, let me lose by making errors. Let me lose by taking chances. Let me not just lose by getting yo-yoed around the court by Goff. And I kind of love that mental adjustment from someone who's still just 16 years old. And obviously, again, I think her weapons already are going to overwhelm a lot of lesser players. Like, she can hit the cover off the ball. What What is it that has you – like, I think her upside is as high as Kornieva's or Andriva's. What makes you think she's not as good as those two now? It's possible. Like, I remember, you know, watching her all the, all, in all these ITF titles, definitely the backhand always stood out. Like, that's an actually elite shot. Yes, that's something that she can take early. That's something she can take dynamically. But uh, I think the second part of the golf match is actually how it looks very often when she's trying to take control a little more. So she, she definitely has a lot of a lot to learn against, yeah, just a decent defender trying to attack, trying to keep up some sort of steady pace. I think, you know, coming down swinging, yes, but after the first 30 minutes, it was just like error after error, the quality decreased rapidly. And uh, I, I think that's actually how she currently looks on the attack quite often. I'm not saying this will look like this in the future. I'm not saying this won't change. Definitely, I, I, I think that she might get to Kornieva Andrieva. I think right now she's the clear third best, though. I am very excited for that Nicolas Massou partnership, though. Uh-huh. I, the, I have no clue what they're going to do. You know, Massou, of course, only just really worked with team. Um, and then, yeah, it's just so kind of surprising to see them together. But at the same time, it's like, okay, so this is this is something fresh. Like, this is definitely a new voice in the team. And um, yeah, I mean, at least with team, you know, everyone everyone was expecting. Uh, so everyone was sort of grading his work very well. Kornieva Andreeva, I'm, I'm definitely more uh, sort of even on right now. I think it's actually one of the main questions in WT tennis right now. Like, is Kornieva as much of a super talent as Andreeva is? And I'm also not ready to say yes or no yet. Uh, but definitely that was the thing that I was watching out for at the Australian Open qualifying this year. Kornieva and Flugvitova, they both had scrappy routes to the um, to the main draw. They both saved match points. I think one of them saved one and the other saved two. So it, it was a bit of a mess, definitely. Kornieva at times especially, I think, was nervous as hell against Vickery, maybe even more so in the, in the first round than in the second round. It was where she saved match points. Uh, but that, that win you mentioned against Bondar, that, that was probably her best. And of course, Brenda has already qualified for free slams and um yeah it, that that kind of tells you something that even at that level which is like probably higher than most of the itf titles she's picked up because she's picked up like 15 over the past two seasons most of them 25k is then maybe going upwards a little bit but um now uh, you know so grand Slam qualifying is a little above that level so it's not like she's not completely you know it's it's like she's completely not ready for the main tour i'm excited to see her again in a you know against a very good opponent uh, i think she played uh, rebakina at one of these slams so of course she was never really given the, the chance to win there i think right now she's uh, getting anna bogdan maybe and then in the second round it would be sabalenka which i don't really think she stands any shot there but if she gets through the opening round that's already a big win at the moment and kornieva i i I think actually could have some round three prospects as well i know it's a little controversial to say that she would have a shot at hadat maya at the moment but 
I just think Hanat Maya is not that reliable, especially at the Grand Slam stage, right? I mean, she, I think until the French Open last year, she never went past the second round. So, you know, she is getting kind of a bit better at that. But I just don't really treat her, I guess, as that strong a favorite against an up-and-coming player like this. Andreeva, I'm very excited to watch at the Australian Open as well because she's going to be like uh, Pera, I think, in the opening mm -hmm. round, and then Jaber, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's another like very trendy round three peak, I think. Yeah. So, so many different things to say off of that and just some stats for the listeners. Brenda Fruvertova, she's played 124 matches in her career. How many wins do you think she has, Damien? Um, I should more or less know this because the past couple of seasons it's been like 50 to 10, more or less her record. So it has to be like 105. I don't know. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for Damien Koo. She is 105 and 19. You really? guessed it. Exactly, my <laughs> no, friend. No, that was actually guess. I was Rest, sort of just West choosing a random number between 100 and 110. But That just, my friend, tells it. me you, it. like me, spend a lot of time on Tennis Abstract because <laughs> Westoff's going to put in a round of applause for you when you guess correctly. I promise. That was, that was just a piece of art. 105 and 19 in her career. That's nuts. Like, she's 16. 105 and 19, 16 and 9 in tour level matches. Now, obviously, that includes qualifying, but you mentioned it. Uh, she, we've seen her qualify for a slam before. She did it at the Roland Garros last year before getting knocked out round one by Elena Rybakina. Um, But look again, like I would argue, and I'm looking at tennis abstract to get the exact number right now. You look for Fruvertova. She's the underdog against Anna Bogdan. Bogdan 60.9%. I think Fruvertova can win that match. I think, yeah. to your point, Kornieva's match first round against Sarah Cerebus Tormo might be my favorite first round match of any. Like, that is a fascinating litmus test for Kornieva, who, by the way, she's played 68 matches. Since you're one for one, I'm going to ask it again, see if you can go two for two. <laughs> 68 matches. How many has she won? Uh, I'm not as familiar. With Brenda, I was writing an article late, uh, recently or something, and I didn't look at the exact stats, of course, but I did look at the 15 ITF titles. So, like, I'm more or less new. Kornieva, I remember her in these Portuguese events. Uh, well, it has to be a lot as well. 68, you said? Yeah, 68 total matches. Let's say 52. Oh, I got so excited when you started with 50. 54. Still a really uh, good guess, though, by the way. 54 and 14, but let's be clear. Last year, she had a stretch where she won nine consecutive matches between 100K, 80K level, wins a title at the 100K level, finals at the 80K level, then 60K, she makes a semifinal as well. 31 and 8 overall in her last 52 weeks. Look, Sarivas Tormo pushes you to the brink physically. She's going to ask every question, but Kornieva might be the best of both worlds. Like Andreeva, you see the size, the length, her movement. That's an athlete that's going to be a top 50 player for a long time. Fruvertova, you see the weapons, the power. That's a player who's going to be top 50 for a long time. Kornieva can kind of do all of it. Like this, She obviously wins the first two junior slams last year, builds that sort of pedigree. But I mean, like again, that Sarah Cerebus-Tormo matchup, 
Yeah, that's so fascinating to me. And then, by the way, Mira Andriva, 78-19. I won't make you guess that one. 78-19 <laughs> overall in her career. She's got the best tour-level results. She's 25-10. and 10. Uh, I should have said it earlier. Uh, you look for Kornieva, she's 6-1 and one in tour-level events at the smallest sample size. That's why perhaps that's Riva's hormone match. So fascinating. I could argue Andriva actually has the toughest first round of the three in taking on Bernarda Pera, who looked really good in her win over Bedosa, then tough loss to Pagula this past week in uh, Adelaide. Look, like, I watched Mira Andriva closely week one. My comparison for her, I think, is Garbine Muguruza. Like, I think that's the best version of Mira Andriva, is someone who, again, has that size, length to move well around the court, but then can blast the ball by you down the line, kind of plays it a little closer to her body, so you're never quite sure where she's going with the ball. Has the first serve, obviously, to set things up as well. Again, three 16-year-olds who I think are all top 100 players already in level. Like, their best is certainly top 100 ceiling at this point. Maybe to your point, Fruvertova, Brenda Fruvertova, the least consistent of the bunch thus far. But you add those three to, again, I think clear-cut Tier 1 prospects. Obviously, Iga is going to be Tier 1 for the next decade. Goff going to be Tier 1 for the next decade. I think Chin Wen is a Tier 1 prospect moving forward. My last thing on these 16-year-olds, and then we can move on. I think uh, Kornieva might be a better Potapova. Like, does that comparison make sense? I guess that's the one I would go with for now. That's like a ridiculous—I mean, Potapova is 22 years old. She's 28 in the world. Like, talk about another really good prospect moving forward. By the way, haven't talked to Nisimova or Raducanu, who respectively have made a slam semifinal and won a slam title already in their careers— you know, Linda Noskova is 19. I'd bet the house on her making a big push to the top 10 at some point in her career as well. This group is really, really good. And you just like, I mean, Sabalenka and Rabakin are the exceptions, I suppose. But man, everyone else in that tier, and it applies to the men's side as well. Like if you are a next gen man or woman, and by that, I mean the original 96 to 98 crew, you're feeling people breathing down your neck. Like your window, this is my hottest take. You ready for this? This is where math Mm -hmm. comes into play. There are only 10 spots in the top 10, Damien. There are only eight spots at the tour finals every year. And I can point to about 14 different players right now who are 22 and younger who you're like, yeah, they would expect to be competing for top eights throughout the primes of their career. And they have the skill set, athleticism, whatever, to expect that of themselves. And man, if I'm like a 24 to 26 year old right now, I'm like, man, I, I got to get my top eights in now because if you don't, I just don't know how long that window is going to be open. Like, I guess this is more men's driven than anything else. But if I'm Zverev or Tsitsipas or Rude or Rublev or Berrettini obviously had a small Wimbledon window, it felt like for a moment there, I am feeling the pressure. Obviously, if you're Pagula, Jabur, if Ostapenko's ever going to win a second one, like Madison Keys, certainly, like I just think you're starting to feel some pressure with these young players breathing down your neck. Yeah, we're probably like two years away from yeah. that on the on the women's side. On the men's though, it's already happened. Like guys like Tsitsipas, Zverev, they are very seriously in danger of not winning a slam ever, just because the younger group is better. Alcaraz, Sinner, Rune, they are simply much better than them. And um, they, they they definitely feel that. Uh, Berrettini, you mentioned as well, like that's another example where we always thought, okay, so he might be, win Wimbledon one day. But right now there's Alcaraz who just won Wimbledon, Rune and Sinner who are also going to be fine on grass. And like, how does he win Wimbledon now? 
And yeah, on the men's side, it definitely applies already. I think on the women's, we are still a few years behind it just because, yeah, all of these players that, that you just mentioned, like Pegula, Jaber, they're still very much in the conversation. Maybe they won't have as good, uh, like, I don't know if they will have as good a season this year as last year. But like, if they if they play just as well as they did, they're still going to be in the slam conversation. Whereas it's not necessarily uh, the same for Zverev, Tsitsipas, Ruda, and et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't mind the Potapova comparison because I think one of the sort of main exceptional things about Potapova early was that she was also a very good defender uh, along with all the ball bashing. And, you know, she was actually able to, for example, when she was playing Kim Zhang, it was always a big difference, like the athlete, athletically, how um, how different Potapova was to her. She kind of stagnated recently. I, I, I have to admit that I've been a little disappointed, but, you know, she's still there. And, and as you said, maybe it's a little ridiculous to already find a better Potapova. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, she's um, 22. Yeah, I, I think it makes sense on the level that Kornieva and Andreeva are just very complete already. And um, yeah, they, they can really pull it off, the, you know, in many different ways, many styles than one, uh, more, more different styles um, than, you know, you can imagine really. So um, yeah, I think that makes them really exciting. With Brenda, you said that maybe like it's a, she hasn't been as consistent. Like for me, it's not a question of consistency, but just the fact that I think if she's playing on the main tour, let's say the whole year right now, there's just going to be a lot of players who overwhelm her and like she will not yet at least have a chance to have an option to respond to them. Of course, she's been very consistent given she's won that 105 matches or <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, um, I, I understand the comparisons and certainly um, recently I was I was I had this discussion with someone when where I was like asking in five years, if you imagine the top of the WTA tour, who are like the first three, four players that come to mind, which is, I guess, more so like uh, like what you said about the 14 players that will be competing for the tour finals. But basically my four were Świątek, Goff, and then from the younger, uh, well, you know, well, I guess Kim Vajeng is older than Goff, actually. But from the uh, generation that, well, from the players that haven't uh, established themselves quite as much yet, I said Zheng and Andrieva. Maybe it's time to start putting Kornieva in that conversation as well. Mm, now we're talking my language. Yeah. I, or Naskova. Like, I'm not selling my Linda stock. Like, not, not, this, not this high. Not, not, not this high. Like, uh, I wouldn't exactly say she's going to be making, you know, fighting for tour finals every year. Uh, but I am, very, I am very high on her. I am those are fighting words. I couldn't disagree with you more. I love everything about Linda Naskova's game. Just the power, how easy the technique is how firm she is in holding the baseline on her return of serve and yet able to make clear contact. Like, look, is her first step where it needs to be? No, she needs to get better as a mover. I'm going to bet on her being able to do so. And the ball striking is just brilliant. But anyways, no, she this is, is a wild comparison. This okay. is a this is a wild comparison, but she kind of reminds me of Mark Laya. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that for both of them, I think currently they already have pretty much everything and once they actually start pulling it off consistently and like having, you know, five good matches in a row or like being able to come up with the same intensity to every single point, every match, they could have like a massive rise. Of course, for Layal, that massive rise would be like top 100. For Noshkova, that massive rise would be top 20, top 15. But that's, that's basically what I'm trying to say. And then in the play style, I guess you could also find some similarities. I got no problem with the comparison. And just again, to put the final bow here on qualifying, shout out to the top two seeds, Diana, Yastrzemski 
Zemska, Renata Zarazua. It's rare that the top two seeds both advance out of qualifying. We actually got that in the women's singles qualifying. Yastremska 6-4 in the third over 17-year-old Maya Joint, who, for what it's worth, from my home state of Michigan, shout out, now represents Australia, University of Texas commit, but 17 years old, certainly got our attention. Um, Fiona Farrow, Obviously, he's dealt with a lot of injuries over the past couple of years. She gets a three-set win. She's into the main draw. The one that shocked me the most, how about Ella Seidel? Love and four over Haley Baptiste in final round qualifying. I thought Baptiste looked really good the first two rounds. Thought she might get through. Uh, ultimately, wasn't able to do so. But any final thoughts on women's qualifying? You ready to move on to the tour level action? I'm probably ready to move on. As I said, I was mostly following the two 16-year-olds who were like from the get-go, you know, one of the most interesting stories. I guess maybe a brief mention to Staro Dubtseva as well, right? Uh, yeah, Ukrainian, course. who was, of course, a college player, so Former you're going to be old familiar Dominion with her. Standout. Good, yeah, yeah, watching her and... It was her and uh, and Sasnaskaya, Tatiana Sasnaskaya, who's a senior at Texas. They were the top two on an Old Dominion team that made the national indoors, a place Old Dominion has not very often been. Anyways, yes, I'm familiar with her her game. Please discuss. No, I mean, I, I don't really have much to discuss. I was just trying to bring her up as, sure. you know, she basically didn't play pros for like four years. And then in one year, she makes the top 150. So, of course, that's worth tracking. Also worth noting, she beat someone by the name of Gabriela Knutson, who not only used to play at Syracuse, took legitimately a year and a half off post-Syracuse and then was like, you know what, I'm going to give tennis this try again. Nearly found herself in the main draw and has found herself inside the top 200 as well. All right. That said, let's get to the tour-level action this week. We're going to spend no more than four minutes on each event, Damien, because I'm going to try and keep you here less than an hour. that work for you? Sure. All right. He gave me the shoulder shrug. We'll take it. Let's start on the women's side in Adelaide. Only one match, obviously, to discuss. Here's the take from it. Yelena Ostapenko ultimately 2-6 and six over Katarina Alexandrova. I had her sixth in my contenders list, entering this 2024 Australian Open. And just some stats. I tweeted them out, but the Ostapenko case here quickly for those unfamiliar. 2017, when she won the French Open, she goes 50-21 and 21 overall. That's 70% win percentage. Nine quarterfinals or better, including two at the majors. Roland Garros sold title. She's 7-8 and eight against the top 20 in 17. Since the start of last year, Yelena Ostapenko, 43-23 and 23 overall. Yeah, it's only a 65% win percentage. Still pretty darn good. Eight quarterfinals versus the nine she had in 2017, but two have been at the majors. A Birmingham title and a 9-9 nine and nine record. Better than her 7-8 and eight versus top 20. Is she at a second peak? Like, is number six the right spot for her, Damien? I think she's playing the best tennis of her career. She's moving really well to start this season. She might be, you know, she she definitely might be. Just recently, I was looking a lot at WTA return stats. That was actually on Tennis Abstract. Yes, shout out to Jeff, of course, as usual. And um, yeah, basically, I was just looking at it because uh, I think it was during uh, like a watch along of Garcia Sviontek. And I was just thinking of, of Garcia, of course. But then at the same time, uh, oh, no, no, sorry. It was during uh, Ostapenko Azarenka, so it was more relevant. I was just wondering, okay, so these both players are like well-known for their returns, but how do they actually, you know, stack up when it comes to the stats? And they were pretty close to each other, but like just seeing how high Ostapenko is with that sort of hyper-aggressive play style and then return style, and then thinking of Garcia, who is the worst first-serve returner in the top 50, like just kind of really tells you why Ostapenko is able to be so consistent recently and Garcia is not. 
Uh, of course, she had that 2022 peak when she was just at her best in every single match. But um, yeah, I, I do think that this is the most consistent patch of Ostapenko's career for sure. She did lose that quarterfinal to Azarenka, but it was a very good match. Um, when it comes to number six, I know I know some people have like uh, commented on that as well. Personally, I cannot really say if I agree or disagree with you, just because I think there's a very clear top four. Yeah. In fact, there's a very clear top three. Then mm. it's Goff. Mm. And then... And then, like, whoever you really place in that 5 Someone to 12. Someone didn't watch Auckland. No, no, no. Come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's no comparison between that event and United Cup and, and Brisbane. And also uh, just the general uh, level on, on such a quick court. But anyway, um, this is a topic for another day, maybe. But, uh, no, when it's, it comes it's to... a topic for now. I have no problem okay. with it. <laughs> so here would be the counter. Goff, 29-4 and four overall since losing to Ken in round one of Wimbledon. Those four losses are to two players, Sviantek and Pagula. That's it. And by the way, she's also beaten Iga. She's beaten Sabalenka. She's beaten all these people during this stretch as well. She's dominated opponents ranked outside the top 20 during this stretch, obviously undefeated against them. Like, I think she belongs in the top four. I think she's four, but I think there's a clear-cut delta between her and Pagula at five. And yeah. I do think... The, the problem that clouds Goff, I've said this before, she's just like 92% of Iga. Like, it's just like they're very similar. They're both very good at everything. The forehands get a little funky, but man, it's the only two players on the women's side I've ever seen slide into their backhands like Djokovic. The problem is Iga's just the better version, and that's what clouds the perception. But like, okay, that's fine. That's still fourth, and I think that four is still good enough for tier one. Mm, I mean, I, I don't really like what you, one thing you said about that about the forehands, like that they get a little problematic. There's no comparison between the two. Like for Shiontek, it's the massive weapon and still the best shot in her arsenal. I don't care that the backhand is like more solid or she slides into it well. This is also a conversation, I guess that's that one yeah, could have. Sure. But um, it's still like the the biggest force in her game. Whereas Goff's doesn't really work defensively or offensively. You know, Igas only has oh. issues taking pace, but. Um, yeah, I, I still think that there is that gap between four and five. I agree with that. I'm actually not even sure Pagula would be my number five. Mm. I just basically think that there are a lot of players who could be put in that five, twelve range, and the exact ordering of them, I'm not. I can't really disagree with anything because this is all very personal, very arguable. If someone not, isn't putting the top three at the top three, or even Goff at number four, that's when I sort of step in and say, mm, I don't really buy that. The reason why I think Goff is such a clear number four is that I don't trust her to beat either of these three players. Uh, I, I just don't think the North American hardcore swing has been sort of continuing for her. I think there's been a clear... Uh, clear sort of uh, drop down in terms of her quality. And I, I, I sort of tend to leave that 15 and one patch or whatever it was, um, you know, back in the past. But I also understand why, you know, you would think based on the stats or based on the quality of her play that she actually is continuing that. I guess this is something we are going to find out. Yeah. But basically what I'm trying to say is that whether Ostapenko is sixth, ninth, 11th, it's not really an opinion that I think has any sort of bases in facts like this, this is just literally personal preference between the players ranked like 5th 12 on the power rankings on the WT side I believe but I, I am glad to see Ostapenko this high personally I would also have her pretty pretty high I'm, I don't know if 6 maybe 7 maybe 8 but uh, yeah she is absolutely one of the main contenders to get there and her consistency in recent months is actually leading me to think that she might be a strong candidate to make the quarters which is like usually where Ostapenko we would sort of struggle with, right? Because how am I going to pick her for the quarters or for the semis? 
if she's just so like, you know, can just throw in 60 unforced errors in the opening rounds. That's not really happening at the moment. So uh, I, I do like that pick and I think she's actually very likely to go deep. She, she could play Azarenka again, right? In the third round. And I think she's more likely than Azarenka to get to the third round, which also kind of says something. Very logical take. But on a podcast, you got to give me the six. Um, you know, again, we got to oh, okay. have some spice here. No, I got no problem with it. That's really well said. Again, I think there's a lot of parody after four in both the men's and the women's side, by the way. I think yeah, that, 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 that's yeah. true. On the, it applies on for the both. Board. And so, no, I have well, no problem with the argument. I mean, I, most would have Zverev and Rune, right? I don't know who. who sure, would I think be most fifth. would have Pagula as fifth yes, on the women's yes, side. And yes, so, like, yes. it's not too dissimilar. Yeah, you're right. And I also don't think Runa would be the prohibitive six. But again, that is a conversation for a different time. We violated the four-minute rule on this one. Here's what I'll say. Ostapenko, through two weeks, is holding 77% of the time. Not only would that be a career high, it'd be a career high by 9%. It would be a top 10 number on the WTA Tour. If this sustains for the year, to your point with how well she returns serve and how aggressive she can be, that's a top eight player. That is someone who is going to be a factor at just every event we see all season. And I want to see her get through Kasakina pretty cleanly because that's a match she should dominate the terms of 5-2 and two in the career head-to-head. Kasakina obviously getting there following the withdrawal from Pagula. That's a really fun final on the women's side in Adelaide. On the men's side, here's where I want our discussion to be centric uh, based off of. First of all, I thought Sasha Bublik played about as well as I have seen him play last night. And he still wasn't good enough to knock off 22-year-old Jack Draper, who I think is already one of the 20 best players in the world. Like, I think from a level perspective, that's what we see. I went through his results at length yesterday, but another guy who's had just pretty much consistent success across the board. I think he's made seven quarterfinals or further at the tour level. I think he's done it on every surface now, indoor, outdoor, uh, hard courts, clay and grass courts as well. Like, Oh, my God. Again, for me, it's when, not if, he's going to make his top 20 debut. I think if he's healthy this season, he'll end inside the top 20. And obviously, he'll have a real test tomorrow because Yuri Lachetchka is moving really well. I didn't know he had this defense in him or this ability to play six feet behind the baseline. I mean, he dominated Korda. We didn't really learn much from that match. But talk to me, Draper, Lachetchka, your thoughts on that final. Yeah, um, I think Draper, I I would totally agree that. Like top 20 is very realistic for him right now. I am afraid that this run is just going to destroy his Australian Open though. Um, Because this is Jack and he's been struggling with his fitness all career, basically. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying there's something he should have done about it. Like it's just a matter of, well, he's still looking for his first ATP Tour title. You're not going to just suddenly jeopardize that and go to the slum thinking, I'm going to go super deep there as an unseeded player. No, that's not going to happen. Of course, he can play Tommy Paul again, which he's he's already been him twice and he like played a ridiculous match against him in the quarters. Oh my but God. if they if they meet again, best of five in a couple of days, I don't know if I like his chances then, right? But But again, it's just sort of being... Uh, maybe a little cautious because of what Draper has been going through. But yeah, Hedgka also really needs it. Of course, he is defending as a quarterfinal at the Australian Open. If he wins the title, this is already 250 points, right? So he will only have like 110 to defend. So that would be massive for him. I hope that this time it's going to last the whole year, though. Like that That's that's my main wish with Lahechka, that this is not just January, February again. And, and I'm not saying he didn't have flashes after that, but they were just that. They were flashes. And definitely nothing of the Melbourne quality where 
of course, he beat Felix in the fourth round and then lost to Tsitsipas. So uh, I think it's going to be a great final. All the finals this week are like super hard to like even pick a favorite. Sure. Um, I, Lehechka, I kind of trust a bit more physically. And I think I, I would have to check that. But I think he also has a pretty decent round one at the Australian Open. So I'm not really worried about him there. Uh, but with Draper, yeah, I, I do wonder how this will reflect on his Melbourne run. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, again, his biggest questions are, are around his health, that physicality, because yeah. you know what his level is. And you're, I'm betting on the 22-year-old, again, growing into his body, getting healthy, getting fit. He has looked exceptional this week. Bublik's playing as well. Again, that was as well as I've ever seen Sasha Bublik play. Like, he cared about the match from start to finish. He was trying to grind Draper down. He was moving extraordinarily well, just doing all the things that Sasha Bublik can do without, dare I say, some of the stupidity that often leaks in. I've been so impressed by Draper this week. Again, Lachetschka just gave Korda the business. It was an uninspired Sebi Korda, and hopefully one that he just, again— erases from his memory uh, heading into Melbourne. But with that said, though, let's move on now to the women's action in Hobart. I'll tell you what, Damien, Elisa Mertens has played some ball this week. She has looked really, really good on her way to another final there. I know I heard a commentator say if she wins this, she'll be the first three-time champion of this event in history. And I know 250 success kind of dare I say, defines Elisa Merton's ceiling, at least thus far in her career. But look, it's the top two seeds going head-to-head in this Hobart final. You've got Merton's on one side, Emma Navarro uh, against the other. Navarro, dare I say, consolidating her spot in the top 50. You make a 250 final. Last week, obviously, she made a semi. That's like seven of her ITF results from last season. She now no longer has to worry about a huge luxury (laughs) from a scheduling perspective for her moving forward. She could just do more things than Yuan Yua in that semifinal. And something I think she unlocked in her loss to Goff last week in Auckland, she started hitting through the backhand with more pace, a gear I didn't know she had in her. That backhand has been a theme of uh, success and part of her success, dare I say, throughout the course of this week. I thought that was the biggest difference between her and her opponent yesterday. Top two seeds going head-to-head. This is a fun top 35 battle, Damian Thoughts on the week in Hobart? Thoughts on this final? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think this is a pretty weird statement, actually, about that three-time champion thing, because she's also the only two-time champion in the history of the event. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it still works, but, you know, it, it's kind of less important because of sure. that, I suppose. But yeah, Mertens has been amazing in these warm-up Australian Open swings. Sometimes it has resulted in big runs at the Australian Open as well. Sometimes not really. But uh, yeah, it's certainly a, a pretty fun top seed final. Elise Mertens also won, I think, her last event of the 2023 mm-hmm. season at 250, as you sort of pointed out in Monastir. So uh, together with that, you can sort of mention that it's a big patch of play. But yeah, I get how there's no real story around her being in a 250 final at this point. Whereas Emma Navarro is actually a real story. You know, over over the last couple of months, there was a lot of talk on Twitter. You know, people saying that basically she got to the ranking that she has with these Charleston and Tyler titles, mostly because it was like at the end of last year and no one was playing anymore and it was ITFs and she gets to 31 and like, how is this possible? Um, well, if, if she did that in weeks where there were other tour events, WTA tour events, 
then maybe I would be like, okay, so she could have played there. But she did it at the end. So like, what what else was she going to do, right? And also she had that San Diego semi. So this is why I sort of never bought into that whole argument that she's not good enough. And uh, I think the the past couple of weeks, obviously, she's just proven she belongs. And, and like, that's really the end of the story. She lost to Coco Goff. Yes, of course, she lost to one of the top four players in the world. But Elise Mertens also lost, uh, won just one game against Rybakina, right? So uh, it's it's not that different. I mean, they were just both so far only blown away by one player who is one of the best in the sport. And yeah, Navarro to to make a, a quarterfinal last week, no, semifinal last week, now the final here, obviously that's huge. I do wonder, just like with Draper, how it will reflect on her Australian Open, but she's definitely also not in a spot yet in her career where she needs to worry about that. And uh, yeah, I just think it's great for her that she just instantly managed to prove that, yeah, this is this is real. Like the, the ranking of 31 is, is nothing weird, you know? I actually think there's a lot of similarities between these two players, Mertens and Navarro. Do they have the outstanding weapons? No, they're not going to play elite, as I like to call Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club Tennis, but... They're really good across the board. Like, can just do a little bit of everything. No definitive weakness to attack. Obviously, for Mertens, if you can attack her forehand with pace, yeah, she'll sit it up a little bit, but pretty flexible off those wings. Both pretty good movers in the outer thirds, and that's been the biggest improvement for Emma over these last 18 months since leaving college is just physically. She has transformed herself into a real top 50 player. Again, she can amp up the forehand. The backhand has turned into a weapon. These are both two just really good players. It's going to be a really high level of tennis from start to finish. Merton's the 56% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. Yeah, that's about right. It's a toss-up. You lean Merton's because she's the more experienced in these final scenarios. But yeah, that's a match we're going to learn a lot about. Certainly a fun one before we get into Australia. And then last but certainly not least, the chaos in Auckland. We thought we were getting Fee Shelton. Again, we're getting Tabilo versus Daniel instead. Now you look for Alejandro Tabilo. It's his second career tour level final qualified into the event this week and now up to a new career high 60 as a result of reaching this final. Taro Daniel, the 30-year-old from Japan, I think he became either the fourth or fifth player ever from Japan to make an ATP tour final with this result. It's the first tour final, uh, excuse me, to make multiple finals uh, at the tour level. It's his first tour level final since Istanbul back in 2018. Uh, Again, I mentioned it, the 30-year-old up to a new career high 57 in the rankings as a result of this run. The Daniel match was really, it was Ben Shelton match at its finest, the break here. Like, that was the difference. Ben had set points in that second set break, or Daniel able to grind him down in those instances, draw the error. The Tabilo Fees match was fascinating because it is kind of indicative of look, if you can play with pace, if you can get Arthur on his back foot, he can get rushed, and the error started to come. And again, if talking about getting people on their back foot, Alejandro Tabilo is at times a lefty curious. Like uh, with 85%, dare I say, of the success. Like it's just how he kind of moves forward, kind of laces around that baseline. You never are like, oh, he's going to go all the way there. It's kind of big steps and a reach. And obviously he can do that with his wingspan. But talk about a guy who strikes the ball beautifully. Again, it's a funky final in Auckland. But it should be a fun one, Damien. Your thoughts on what we saw this weekend. I'm not hitting any panic buttons for Shelton or Fee. I think this speaks to most more to these two playing really well right now. 
Yeah, um, it's definitely not as weak as people think. Like we've had worst ATP finals before. <laughs> I would even argue that maybe Taro's previous Istanbul final against Jaziri on clay. Sure. Like that was actually maybe less interesting than this. And and yeah, Taro, I've spent like, this is a big personal win for me because I've spent like half <laughs> the season uh, talking about Taro Daniel and how he's, this is actually the best he's ever played. Not the Djokovic win, not when he won the ATP title, not when he had the previous career high, but that this is actually the most consistent he's been against top 50 players. He's finally looking like competitive in almost every match. And uh, that's why it's it's a big win for me because now everyone sees that I was right. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> not, maybe it's just a big win for me because I no, don't that's have all to that... talk about it for you know the next few months. All but, that yes. matters is that you were right. That's the real victory yeah. again. That's how we're here to celebrate. That's the victory here. Uh, I think this loss actually reflects a bit on Shelton. Like his returning was unbelievably poor. And uh, against someone like Taro, who I guess has a pretty decent first serve, he definitely improved it over the years. But still, it's yeah. it's not really a server that you're going to be afraid of. So Shelton will like need another massive um, Grand Slam peak out of nowhere, which we all know he's capable of. But it, it kind of you know took away some excitement from me when it comes to the potential Shelton Djokovic round four. Um, well, again, like maybe he just randomly picks out of nowhere. Who knows? And with Tabiro, he was so good on the Challenger Tour uh, last year. And I think he's just way better than he was when he first hit the Tour. Mm -hmm. And um, on hard courts as well over the years, I know maybe not really at the ATP level. This is this was his first hard court semi, I think. But at the Challenger level, he had a lot of good events like Puerto Vallarta, Lexington. I think he beat Kokinakis in like this famous match two years ago. So uh, it's not like it hasn't been working out. You know, he has that aggressive game to, to get him going on a hard court as well. So I'm glad to see it. I think he is well, way more prepared right now for the ATP Tour than he was back then. And by the way, in that final against Ramos Vinolas, he led like 4-1 in the third with, that, with a double break. So this is also a big test to sort of see if he's ready now mentally to claim a title. Uh, well, it, I'm not saying he has to, of course. This is, again, a very close match, which basically makes the whole uh, lineup of finals tomorrow pretty exciting. And when it comes to whether it reflects on feels, the last uh, the last thing, um, I guess my expectations ahead of the Australian Open weren't that high anyway, mostly because, yeah, I just think it's a slam where they can rush him, like lots of players will. With the draw that he got, Iji Vesely opening round, this is actually somewhat tricky. But let's see, let's say he pushes through it. He plays Safiulin or Griekspor in the second round. And I think that's probably done. Like, like, like that's probably where Fitz is gonna end. He's especially if he plays Safiulin. Uh, I just don't really see a way forward for him there. But again, like it, it doesn't really change anything to me regarding his potential. He's just not really quite there on such a quick court yet, like against pace, yeah, especially. US Open, Ron Garros this year, I'm going to be looking out for him there. Australia, I didn't really have that much, you know, that my expectations weren't that high anyway, so. All right, fair enough. Well, we'll leave that there again. We'll follow up on those tour finals tomorrow on tomorrow's show. Last but not least, you will do a full show recapping the week of ATP Challengers on Monday. So I'm not going to ask you to recap everything now. But here's how I want to frame it. Three challengers this week. Tomorrow, you've got finals Val Vasher, the former AM uh, All American, who is into a second consecutive challenger final to start his season. He'll take on Manuel Guinard in Nantaburi in Portugal. Martin Dom 
Dom taking on Leandro Rady. That's 20-year-old Dom versus a 21-year-old Rady. Rady, former junior French Open finalist. Martin Dom, longly a highly touted prospect, longtime highly touted prospect in American junior tennis. Then you've got Buenos Aires, where last year's junior U.S. Open champion, Jao Fonseca, makes the semifinals of a challenger for the first time in his career. He's taking on Dimitri Popko. You've got Jao Lucas Reyes da Silva taking on Gonzalo Bueno as well. Fans should focus on which one of these three challengers down the home stretch of this week as they prepare for Australia. Let me say, thankfully, they are all in different times of the day. Uh, you know, okay. Nontaburi is going to be so Love angry it. that usually you would have Australia at the same time, but now you don't tomorrow. Or like you have the finals, but you can still catch it, you know. I, th- I think every single one of these has its merits. Of course, Nontaburi and Oerash is just finals left, but Oerash with the two next-gen players, or or like next-gen, you know, according to me, not to the ATP anymore, <laughs> but, but certainly younger and up-and-coming players really getting back into form. They had like sort of different trajectories, completely opposite at the end of last year. So it's good to see now that they're both in the final, you know, Dam continuing that great patch and really just finding something after an absolutely horrific stretch to end the previous season and a horrific season as a whole, I think we can even say. And uh, Nontaburi, yeah, it's that, that the whole thing with Vashro being like the king of that event. <laughs> he won it in 2022. He won it uh, last week, as you said, and now he's playing Guinard again in the final. And he uh, played Guinard in the qualifying for the first event this year in Nontaburi. So it was a final qualifying round in the first event. And now it's a final, which is also pretty funny that Guinard basically has only lost to Vashro so far. <laughs> and uh, yet he actually then go out of qualifying in the first event. And yeah, Fonseca, I think he must be like the biggest story anyway I, I am kind of afraid for him in the Popco matchup because Popco is just such a good retriever and you know he could very likely expose the inconsistencies and uh, sort of drawbacks that go with being 17 year old <laughs> 17 years old and uh, basically not being maybe that well prepared mentally to handle the tour also in terms of just yeah shot selection especially if you have weapons like Fonseca he's still getting there but I think it's just becoming very clear. And in fact, I, I picked him for the title on the Challenger podcast, <laughs> which uh, can be a big win for me if he gets there. But um, basically what, what I was sort of hoping for is that whatever he's gonna, whoever he's going to play this week, if he loses, he's not going to be outplayed. He loses be, because he's like 17 and basically can't, doesn't know how to use his skill set most effectively yet. And I think that's been holding up that even when he had that horrific set against Felix Gil in the opening round, you couldn't really say that he's getting outplayed. Like the guy's just better than all the players in the event. How much does that actually say about him depends on sort of your personal opinions because, well, this is a challenger 50, so it's only players around 250 and below. Personally, I think that's already uber fantastic that he's already sure. better than all of these guys. <laughs> And I guess we shouldn't be surprised because this is a guy who in his like first five challenger appearances beat Kovacevic, Sabovic, Navone, Tirante, I think as well. So so he is actually better than all of these guys there. I don't know if he wins the title. It's possible that he doesn't, but it just makes you so excited for Fonseca's year. I, you know, let's say two events like this, a title and a final, and everyone is going to be wondering whether he's going to follow like in Mikkelsen's footsteps, you know, mm-hmm. when when uh, he is committed to college and actually he becomes way too good before before even joining. But of course, that's still a long for, a long way away. It's hard to hold sort of your hold of your expectations on Fonseca. I'm just like I'm just happy that he got to the semi and, and we sort of 
know for sure now that he's actually better than these players, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I love to hear it. And again, if you want to hear a full breakdown of everything that unfolds over the weekend on the ATP Challenger Tour, make sure to check out Damien's podcast here on the Great Shot Podcast feed every Monday. Damien, what else do you have coming up throughout the course of the Australian Open? Uh, well, no, the, the usual. Lots of Twitter <laughs> content, some articles as well. And um, yeah, we'll just try to not lose my sanity while also <laughs> getting some sleep, hopefully. Um, and yeah, it's it's always an exciting time, even though during that actual period, you might kind of hate it and you might be already so exhausted, but uh, it's still going to be so, so cool. And I think especially for me, you know, the, the first week of the of the slam, when we have both the challengers in the first week, that's that's quite exciting. Whereas in the second week, I sort of, start leaning more towards the challengers probably no that's always again where the fun begins saying trying to stay awake uh trying to stay sane and certainly enjoying your content throughout all staples of australian open coverage for fans and again it is always a pleasure to have you on the show so appreciate you taking the time today thank you of course as always to our super producer daniel westoff for the ending job he does day in day out making all of our content possible a shout out as well to the support we get from our dear friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world with that said for the fantastic damian coost our super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin damian what do we tell our listeners that's the break and we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, Damien. 